Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another free CC Partners webinar, uh, interactive webinar. This will be episode 21 of the Lawyers for Employers broadcast, and we thank you all for joining us today. Uh, so we're glad you can join us. So let's get started. Um, if you're not watching us live, then you're uh, watching or listening to episode 21, like we said, of the Lawyers for Employers broadcast brought to you by CC Partners. My name is Mike McClellan, and I will be your moderator today. Our panelists today are Kelsey Orth, Charles Bins, and Christina Tomaino. We are all lawyers for employers here at CC Partners. Uh, for those of you who are meeting for the first time today, CC Partners is a boutique labor and employment law firm exclusively advising employers in all areas of workplace law, including some of the areas we're going to be talking about today. Employment law, dealing with individual employment relationships. Labor law, where there is a collective bargaining relationship. Occupational health and safety and human rights. When we're not working remotely, our flagship office is located in downtown Brampton, Ontario. And we also have offices in Barrie and Sudbury. And we are located online at www.ccpartners.ca. And you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Now, this is, I believe, the 10th webinar we have presented on workplace law issues dealing with COVID-19 to go along with our dozens of articles on our award-winning Employer's Edge blog, all of which are available on our website. And we will try to get to all of your questions during the Q&A portion of our presentation. Uh, so we are gonna go ahead and jump into our presentation. Today's presentation is reopening childcare during COVID-19. This is our back to school special as we're calling it. And we're gonna take a look at some of the issues that we're already seeing with respect to workplace law issues in the childcare sector, reopening during and after the pandemic. And in particular, we're gonna take a look at the infectious disease emergency leave uh, that was introduced as an amendment to the Employment Standards Act and a regulation thereof. Uh, what's becoming a new hot button topic is masking and face coverings, both in terms of workplace policies and municipal bylaws that we're seeing across the province. We'll take a look at refusals to return to work. Hopefully we won't have too many of those, but what to do when we have employees who are not coming back to work. Along the same lines, we'll be dealing with employee absences, and finally, another big topic, managing accommodation and requests for medical information. Before we get started, we'll make sure you have our contact information. Our website, again, is www.ccpartners.ca. You can find all of our broadcasts and blog articles there. You can subscribe to our blog, which many of you have already done. Thank you very much. And if you have any questions that don't get addressed during this webinar, please feel free to reach out to 
any of our presenters, and we will do our best to provide you with the support and advice that you need. So first off, I'm gonna turn it over to Christina. And Christina, can you please walk us through the infectious disease emergency leave and what that means for employers in the childcare sector? Um, and thank you everyone for joining us. If you've joined us for our previous webinars, specifically in the childcare sector, uh, you may have heard me speak about infectious disease emergency leave before, um, but it continues to be a very important um, response to the COVID-19 pandemic affecting employers. So as you may already know, in May of this year, the Ontario government introduced a new regulation the infectious disease emergency leave. And the most notable impact of that has been for those employees who were on uh, what would normally be classified as a temporary layoff. So for example, when all the childcare centers were mandated to be shut down, instead they were placed on a job protected leave. Now, initially this was set to continue um, for the COVID-19 period that was between March 1st, 2020, so retroactive, and continuing until six weeks after the Ontario emergency order was lifted. As we know, that emergency order was lifted quite some time ago. And because of that, and, and acknowledging that there are still disruptions to the workplace, that COVID-19 period has since been extended until January 2nd, 2021. So I know many employers have been uh, or had been holding off on making either recall or perhaps termination decisions while waiting for that job protected leave period to conclude. So any of those decisions will again be postponed until January 2nd of next year. So specifically under the ESA, uh, the infectious disease emergency leave has impacts to the temporary layoff provision the termination provision and uh, the way constructive dismissal is treated. So for um, those employers who have, do have employees who have been impacted either in terms of their rate of pay or the hours they're working because of COVID-19, uh, they would be deemed to be on infectious disease emergency leave. And another key area with infectious disease emergency leave is providing that job protected leave for parents who are impacted by things like school closures and have childcare obligations or other caregiving obligations as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I know from some of the questions that have come in already that that's a hot button issue. Uh, so there is some discussions about whether parents who choose to keep their children home from school um, can access the infectious disease emergency leave. There was a news release that went out from the Ontario government that suggested that that was the case. Uh, however, that has not been officially added into the legislation. That said, if employees are uh, affected because a child's school closes due to a COVID outbreak or their child has been told that they need to uh, be home and be self-isolating or waiting on a COVID test, then they would have that access to the leave. And uh, for clarity, as you'll see on the slide, this only applies to those non-unionized employees. So if you're a unionized 
child care center, this would not apply to you. So now beginning on January 3rd, 2021, assuming there are no further extensions, because as we've seen, there have been a couple in the past, uh, what will happen is we'll go back to the status quo. So employees will no longer be deemed to be on infectious disease emergency leave, and that's under the regulation. The regular rules around constructive dismissal, temporary layoffs, and terminations will apply. So for anyone who's still on a temporary layoff as of January 3rd, 2021, the clock effectively resets. So then you'll have either that 13 or 35 week period, depending on whether benefits are continued until the deemed termination provisions kick in. Christina, I, I just while you're on the topic, Mm -hmm. um, you talked about the expiry of uh, the the uh, uh, infectious disease emergency leave deeming provisions as of January third, twenty twenty one. What does does that date hold any significance for people who are otherwise accessing the infectious disease emergency leave under Section fifty point one of the Employment Standards Act? So for those employees, for example, who can access the leave under, um, under the act, if COVID is still a designated infectious disease, then those, um, those abilities and that job protected leave would still be available. Great, thank you very much, Christina. It's very helpful to understand what is going on with the, you know, the changes to our, our statutory regime and Ontario with respect to the protected leaves of absences. And it's certainly been, as you mentioned, a really big uh, challenge for our employer clients, uh, how to manage their, their staffing levels without uh, risking liability for terminations when that's really not the intention. So thank you for, uh, for giving us an overview of that. We're changing topics a little bit and uh, as I mentioned before, this is a, a new hot topic for us, and uh, I think Christina's going to walk us through how uh, we may have a, a few different legal considerations and conflicts here and how we're going to try to navigate those uh, in, in the foreseeable future. So, Christina, can you talk to us about uh, the masking requirements that may exist in, in the workplace? Absolutely. So the requirement to wear a mask while at work, it has a number of places it can stem from. Uh, so as we're well aware, many municipalities have introduced bylaws that require mandatory face coverings in public places, specifically indoor public places. Uh, and those come with fines, for example, a $1,000 fine for non-compliance. In the childcare sector, of course, there are unique considerations and various other regulatory factors uh, that may also mandate that staff need to be masked. And finally, there's the, you know, on a workplace by workplace basis, employers do have the ability to implement policies that masks are required, you know, further and aside from any other requirement uh, that may be imposed from a regulatory body or municipality. So as an employer, even for example, if, if masks are not mandated upon you, uh, you can make that choice to have your employees wear masks while at work. That's a good point, Christina. And 
you know, an employer's overarching duty under the Occupational Health and Safety Act is for the health and safety of its workers. So, uh, you know, even if it's not clear whether the bylaw applies, then we, we're strongly recommending employers to have a COVID policy that takes uh, social distancing and hygiene measures into account. I also want to say that I was looking at the uh, Brampton uh, masking bylaw, and in fact, businesses, uh, from what I'm reading, may actually face fines up to $100,000 for noncompliance. Um, I would imagine those are for really egregious violations, but uh, that, that has been updated, so it's more than $1,000 now. That's uh, certainly quite the, the hefty fine. And one area that I know employers are having to deal with is uh, when employees are coming into the workplace and refusing to wear masks. This is where the existence of the bylaws and the overlap with an employer's health and safety obligations come into conflict to an extent uh, because employees may be under the impression that they can simply assert that they are exempt from the bylaws and that they don't have to substantiate that because if they were a member of the public simply accessing the service, the bylaws typically say that a business owner, for example, cannot require proof that someone meets an exemption. As an employer dealing with an employee, that's a different story. So if you have a policy in your workplace, either because of a bylaw, a regulator, or simply because that's your policy, that employees wear a mask, and an employee comes and advises that they are subject to, say, a medical exemption from that requirement, uh, you would need to treat that like any other accommodation request, looking for medical documentation to support that, and assessing whether there is any accommodation that is appropriate, given that the refusal to wear a mask may create an unsafe work environment for other employees. So those factors of accommodation and health and safety really need to be balanced. Now, on the other hand, if an employee is simply saying, you know, I, I don't believe masks are effective. Uh, I think it's my choice whether I should wear a mask and, and I'm choosing not to do so. Uh, and there's no, say, human rights code uh, protected ground related to the refusal, then you're looking at insubordination and a potential disciplinary response to that refusal. So, Christina, in the childcare industry, to the best of my understanding, there are specific public health guidelines depending on the region within Ontario, uh, where, if I'm not mistaken, uh, childcare providers are required to have face coverings. What do you see as the kind of interaction between the municipal bylaws and the public health guidelines if an employee is trying to assert an exemption, uh, for example, from wearing a face covering? That's a good question, Mike. And I think uh, the bylaws are, are really the baseline when it comes to uh, the masking requirement. Of course, in a child care center, there are enhanced uh, guidelines that have been provided by the various public health authorities. So simply having an employee come in and say that they have an exemption as listed in the bylaw uh, may not be sufficient 
to create a valid exemption under the public health guidance for childcare centers. So if an employee for valid reasons cannot wear a mask at work, uh, it may be that as an accommodation in a childcare sector where there are requirements that they need to be out of the workplace or they need to be accommodated into an area of the workplace where they're not face-to-face -face with children. And so again, if, if there is a valid uh, or a, a purported exemption on the basis of disability, perhaps religion, um, you would treat this like any other accommodation request do make your inquiries, do the follow-up, uh, seek medical documentation, and, and as necessary, seek out advice uh, from us here at CCP. Now, Christina, some of the bylaws, in fact, I think most of the bylaws that I've read, they seem to be pretty consistent in their substance. Uh, in terms of an exemption, they mentioned a disability that would prevent somebody from putting on or removing their own mask. In that kind of a situation, do you think it's still appropriate to reach out or to require uh, medical uh, information? So I think if it's if an employee is advising you that as the employer that they cannot put on and remove uh, their own mask, I think there's likely uh, there does need to be some follow up, and that's of course on a case by case basis. Um, I'm making some assumptions here, but presumably as an employer, if an employee cannot put on and remove a mask, uh, you may already be aware of medical issues and you may already be accommodating those issues. So you just have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis, follow up as appropriate based on the information you may or may not already have. And I think it's important to keep in mind too that when we're asking for uh, medical information, we really need to restrict ourselves to the information that we need in order to explore accommodation, uh, which I think uh, Charles will be talking about a little bit later on in our presentation. So thank you very much for that, uh, Christina. And uh, I believe we're gonna move on to Kelsey now to give us a bit of an overview and some information about uh, another situation that unfortunately we're seeing a little bit, which is where employees are advising their employers that they cannot or they will not return to work. So Kelsey, can you please give us some advice and information on what happens in the childcare sector when one of our employees is telling us that they cannot or will not return to work? Sure, thanks Mike and thanks Christina for that <clears throat> information as well. There, I mean, first of all, there, we're getting two types of refusals or we're seeing two types of refusals um, coming to us from our, our employer clients. Uh, the justified refusal, which we'll, uh, we'll talk about, and then those that turn out to be unjustified. Um, I mean, at first glance, you as the employer may have your opinions as to what is justified and what isn't. But as we've advised throughout this pandemic, with all the new challenges and new considerations coming up weekly, if not daily, it's always best to take a step back and ask a question or two first before you take any action. <clears throat> so uh, you see here, we've got three considerations we suggest before taking disciplinary action. So 
you know, the idea that you'll take disciplinary action is based on a finding that the, uh, the refusal is unjustified. So here are some of the considerations. Is the employee's concern tied to the physical condition of the workplace or otherwise to a safety concern that needs to be investigated? <clears throat> um, as I'm sure you're all aware, part five of the Occupational Health and Safety Act sets out the employee's right to refuse work and the process therein. Um, and you in your own workplace may have things that go above and beyond what is required in the OHSA, but at a minimum, the right to refuse unsafe work is something that's statutorily protected. And so it is at least a question that needs to be asked. The second consideration, is the employee entitled to a job protected leave of absence? So Christina has already told us about the infectious diseases emergency leave. And in the next slide, we'll talk in a little bit more detail about what instances justify such a leave, but that's the question you have to ask. And then third, if, and sometimes in conjunction with number two, but certainly uh, a requirement to ask as well is, is there some kind of accommodation issue here? Is there a human rights code protection or a ground that is protected under the human rights code that applies here? Most commonly with respect to COVID, we're talking about disability or family status, or as Christina alluded to with respect to the masking requirements, um, potentially religion um, as well. <clears throat> and so, uh, and that may come into play as well as we move into sometime in the future. And uh, I think President Trump's comments about a couple of weeks are uh, naive and I won't even call them overly optimistic, but at some point in the future, there will be a vaccine. And then um, as you may be aware, there are issues with respect to vaccination um, that arise sometimes in conjunction with religion. And so that may come into play. But I mean, I think the theme you need to be aware of is that we can't just take hasty action. We can't just dismiss someone's refusal to return as them being obstinate or them abandoning their employment. That may well be the determination at which you arrive once you've asked these questions and, and gone through the proper steps, but you need to be practical and pragmatic about how you deal with these things because not only do you have these obligations from a statutory perspective, but if you don't take a fair and reasoned approach to any such issue, whether it be a request for accommodation, a refusal to return to work, you've got to also be aware of how that might reflect on your organization going forward. Um, you know, it's a sensitive time for everyone, but also at the end of this, whenever that may be, um, you know, people are going to look back and reflect on their experiences, including how their employer has, has dealt with them. And they may not like your decisions, but at least if you're fair in your approach, then you can rely on that if there's any kind of complaint or anything afterwards, as well as from a morale standpoint. And I'll talk about that a little bit more <clears throat> as we go through this discussion. So I mentioned there are two different types. There are the job protected or the justified leaves and, and those that are not protected by statute or otherwise. The points we've set out here are those job protected absences that arise under section 50.1 of the Employment Standards Act. So. First one, personal illness due to COVID-19 
personal illness from COVID-19, which includes being under medical investigation, supervision, or treatment related to the infectious disease. So as we said before, it's an infectious disease leave, but here we're talking about COVID. If you're directly affected by it, then you're on a leave, right? So um, caregiver duties. Now, it's important to recognize that just living in the same household is not necessarily the same as being a caregiver for those prescribed family members. But caregiving duties includes providing daycare and homeschooling or caring for a sick spouse, children, parents, and and any of the specifically enumerated family members. Um, As I'm sure many of you have encountered, caregiver duties is one of the most common grounds cited for those employees who are unable or who are um, having difficulty coming back to work. And it is one of the protected grounds in many of the Canadian jurisdictions, including of of course, Ontario. needing to provide care to a person for a reason related to COVID-19, which includes a school or daycare closure. And we'll get into in a little while the difference between choosing and needing um, and how that affects your rights as an employer. Um, Because I'm sure, as you know, although you as childcare operators are all allowed to be open and are following all the right protocols, not everybody is sending their child back. And that may include some of your employees not engaging their normal child care um, <clears throat> arrangements as well. The other grounds protected under the ESA uh, include where an employee has been prevented from returning due to travel restrictions, or as a follow-up to that, they, they're in a mandatory self-isolation or quarantine situation because of illness um, exposure to COVID-19 or travel. So those are the job protected leaves. When we talk about ones that aren't protected, here's where it takes a little bit of, again, that, that considered approach, right? You want to balance your business needs, excuse me, business needs and legal rights with some common sense and uh, pragmatism, if you will, and at times compassion. Um, you know, the first instinct may be to come down hard on anybody who you perceive as not being a team player. And, and there's certainly an element to that. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we go through this slide. But if somebody is saying, I can't come because I'm, I, I can't get there. I'm not taking transit. Well, um, at present, there are no directives to, you know, if we're talking about say uh, Toronto in particular, TTC has put in, specific regulations or recommendations with respect to travel on its, uh, both regulations and recommendations with respect to travel on its various modes of transport. Um, There's distancing, there's the the mask directive, all those kinds of things. So when you have those proper procedures and protocols in place that allow you to operate, whether you're an employer or whether you're, um, you know, whether it's the, the transit operator that allows your employees to get to work from our from a legal perspective that is not then a, a justifiable reason for not coming to work it may be a choice and we talk uh, you know you'll hear a, a lot today about the difference between need and choice and you know this is my disclaimer from a personal perspective i'm not going to fault anybody for their choice um, when they're when people have different circumstances 
different considerations. Everybody needs to make the choices that are right for them. However, from a, a professional perspective as an employer, that doesn't mean that you simply have to acquiesce to everything that an employee asks. And as long as procedures and protocols are in place at your workplace to allow people to operate safely, then there's no reason for, for people not to be there. Um, from a legal perspective, from a purely legal perspective. Um, as, as you have no doubt heard, choices have consequences, right? And, and so it's up to people who make those elective decisions to, uh, to work around them and, and, and or um, deal with the consequences. Similar to that is the, the unjustified fear of contracting COVID-19 due to interacting with coworkers, clients, or visitors. And when we say unjustified, again, we're saying that in the context of you've got the protocols, procedures, and policies in place that are mandated by the public health authority, and you are approved to operate. Therefore, there is no legal or justified reason for you to say, no, I'm not coming because of COVID-19, just purely out of the fact that you're operating. Not justified as well is, as I alluded to in uh, when talking on the last slide is just by virtue of the fact that you live in a multi-generational living arrangement or with an immunocompromised family member. There are specific protections for caregivers, but the wording is set out as such for a reason. And it's not just living with someone because again, there are measures that people can take in their private lives um, if they have concerns that should not affect your rights as an employer. And the last one and, and most contentious one and one that I think most employers um, have an issue with is once you've got people coming back to work, um, you know, I mean, it's, there, there are different considerations always, but if you've got people coming back to work and, you know, being the team player, being the people on the front lines in, in childcare and other people who say, oh, I'd, I'd rather just sit home and take my government payments. Well, that's not a justified absence, right? There may be certain considerations where it makes sense as an employer to um, make special arrangements for someone. But as a general rule, if somebody is choosing that or asking that they stay home because they'd rather get their government payments then come to work. It's not justified from a legal perspective. Kelsey, before we move on to the next slide, I've got two questions for you. With respect to multi-generational or immunocompromised family members living in the same home as our employee, I'm obviously aware, and I think we're all aware, that under the Human Rights Code, a protected ground is family status. So what happens if an employee asserts that their family status needs to be accommodated with respect to a family member who they're not caring for, but who is immunocompromised? Yeah, that's a great question. And quite frankly, Mike, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Uh, whether it comes up in future litigation at the Human Rights Tribunal or otherwise, I mean, quite frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if it does because the definition of family status is typically uh, considered to be in a caregiving relationship, right? And so that's the, the interaction between the Human Rights Code and, and the wording of the ESA that I see 
is that you're in a care giving relationship because it used to be just assumed as as you know um that that meant parent and child and parent to child but now it's parent and child and obviously case law has evolved as well but in my view at least the way that that case law has evolved still suggests that there has to be a caregiving relationship and not just a living arrangement and then one final question on this slide we talked about or you you talked about uh, an employee who would prefer to take the serve or whatever the next round of federal government benefits will be uh, to what extent do you think an employer should be dictating to an employee uh, that they should be applying for or receiving government benefits, even in an accommodation uh, policy or, or practice? Well, not at all. Uh, I mean, in terms of dictating what an employee should do outside of the employment relationship, I think uh, anyone who's ever uh, spoken with us knows that we don't want to get involved in anything between the employee and uh, the CRA or Service Canada, whether it be before, during, or after employment. Um, and that goes, that holds true for, for this as well. I mean, look, employees are gonna ask you questions or they're gonna say, well, now I, you're not giving me any income. I've gotta go on government benefits. And you say, look, that's, you know, quite frankly, it's not our deal. The reason this bullet point is up here is because often that's what employees are saying to employers is I'd rather do this, right? And, and um, kind of the answer to, to that request or statement from an employer's perspective is first and foremost, you're supposed to be at work, I need you to be at work, right? And when you know what the justification is, it, it makes it a little bit easier. And I said, that's why we have a tough time with that. Or, um, you know, also why from, a, from an enforcement perspective, an enforcement of employer rights, that, that is, it, it makes a difference to the coworkers and the, you know, the rest of the team in terms of morale if everybody else is there uh, busting their butts every day and, and this person is trying to game the system, right? Um, but in terms of whether or not an employee who's on any kind of absence actually gets or applies for benefits, that is not up to us as the employer. And, and uh, rather that's something that we shouldn't even, you know, uh, address other than to say up to you employee what you do. Thanks, Kelsey. I appreciate that. Um, and thank you for helping us walk through um, these uh, employee absence uh, situations. And uh, I think now we're going to turn over to Charles to give us some insight and overview about uh, accommodation issues in that really tricky subject. It's always been tricky, now it's even trickier of getting medical information from an, employ from an employee um, as part of the accommodation process. So Charles, take it away. Okay, thanks Mike. Uh, yeah, and so what, what you'll notice with these next series of slides is that it's, it's gonna be sound a little bit repetitive. It's gonna overlap with just about everything that everyone's talked about here today. Um, and it can really be a lot to kind of take on and tackle all at one time. So my goal really with these slides is just to kind of let you, let you know where you start when you're faced with one of these issues because where you go is gonna change depending on the situation, depending on who you're dealing with, depending on potentially you know, what time of year it is, what kind of legislation has been passed. So it's really important to have a fundamental base of 
I've got an accommodation claim coming in or I'm seeking medical information, what's the first steps? So that's kind of what I'm gonna focus on here. And I'll probably expand on some of the other comments that some of my colleagues have already made. So we'll start with accommodation. Uh, so the first question when faced with a, you know, whether it's a, a request for accommodation or whether you notice something that you suspect there might be an issue that maybe um, you need to look into whether an accommodation is necessary, if it's a, a poor performance or some sort of drastic change in attitude of an employee. Um, the first question to ask yourself or the first information to gather is accommodation of what? So the answer to that kind of comes from two places. The legal answer comes from the Human Rights Code, um, which sets out all the grounds of discrimination. Um, and you can accommodate on the basis of any one of those grounds. And then there's the factual answer, which is the part going to be answered by the second half uh, of these slides on medical information. But you first need to establish what it is we're trying to accommodate. So in the context of what we're talking about here, COVID reopening, all of that, I've just identified what I think are probably going to be the three most likely. And so the first you can see there is disability. Um, so, and again, information gathering is really key because you know, it's confusing for you. This stuff is confusing for employees as well. So they might think that they have a basis for accommodation because they live with someone who's disabled and therefore vulnerable to COVID. Um, and that's not the case when you're talking about human rights accommodation. It, it, human rights accommodation has to do with the employee themselves. Unless, of course, we're talking about family status. Well, I'll get to that in a second. So you need to establish someone comes to you for an accommodation request you ask a few questions. You don't need to dig too deeply at that point, but you find out their real concern is that they live with someone who's vulnerable to COVID. Then you're not looking at a human rights accommodation, which can be very onerous. You may be looking at a leave of absence or something like that. So then you're gonna go down that path. Um, so the other thing to know about disability accommodation is you can't necessarily decide on appropriate accommodation without having the medical information. So if you've established that it's a disability, you won't necessarily know exactly the nature of the disability or what it is. Um, that's the next step, gathering medical information. But it's not necessarily the case that the employee will just get a leave of absence um, because they're disabled and vulnerable to COVID. And that's the way that you deal with it. There may be other measures you can put in place. There may be different roles that you can place them in. There may be different times of day that you can have them coming in when they're not as exposed to things. So don't just assume that a leave of absence is necessarily going to be the answer. So the second ground there, um, as I think we've alluded to throughout, is the ground of family status. So the family status ground of accommodation is really kind of one of the least understood and probably most troublesome for employers because legally speaking, there is a bit of confusion as to what exactly that means. So as Kelsey was saying, a lot of the cases deal with family status in terms of childcare responsibilities or elder care responsibilities. And in this case, I think we all expect that you're gonna get different types of family status claims, probably based on situations where you live with someone who is vulnerable and therefore they're seeking accommodation because they don't wanna put that person at risk. Whether or not that um, is a valid request for family status accommodation, kind of remains to be seen. What we do know is that there, in order to be successful, there has to be some sort of significant obligation, not just a preference or a choice uh, that the workplace is interfering with. Um, we do know that there have to be some sort of reasonable efforts 
by the individual seeking accommodation to deal with their situation. Um, legally, how that factors in is a bit of an open question, but it, it is going to matter at some point throughout the analysis. Um, the other thing to remember is that the, the undue hardship that you have in a, a duty to accommodate up to and including or up to the point of undue hardship still applies for family status. So it's a similar kind of analysis that you would undertake um, for an accommodation under disability, but the facts in the application might just be a little, a little different. So for example, particularly in childcare, if you're a smaller organization and you have relatively few employees and you're already accommodating a number of people, and then this, this you know, final accommodation request you just can't handle based on operations, maybe you have an undue hardship argument to be made there. Really, whenever we're talking about accommodation, the focus really is just being on reasonable and treating each case on its own facts. You have to treat every individual request on its own and make sure that you're ticking every box, fulfilling your own obligations. Um, so the last one I've got there, age, I don't, I don't actually know if that could be a successful claim for accommodation. I, it's just something as I was thinking about this that I could see you know, clever employees or more likely clever employee counsel making the argument that if, if you have an older employee, it could go both ways, either they don't wanna come into work because they feel vulnerable or perhaps an employer is trying to keep them out of work in order to protect them from any type of vulnerability. You could kind of see a claim going that way. So I really just kind of raise that as an issue to be mindful of and thinking if you're getting a, a request like that. I think that's a good uh, point, Charles, and, and something that I've considered earlier. I know public health uh, agencies throughout the province were uh, really advocating for, I think, people over the age of 70 to stay quarantined uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I could see a situation where if, if that happens again, and those are the guidelines for public health, we very well could see a request for accommodation from our older workers asking for a, you know, an, an indefinite leave of absence while they're being advised by public health to stay home. It would be kind of a, a new situation that we haven't quite seen yet, but it would certainly require that kind of uh, individual uh, analysis of whether it's a, a reasonable accommodation request uh, in the circumstances. Um, so so why don't you take it from there, please, Charles? Sure. And then, so the, the final part with accommodation before we just go on to the medical information is just the kind of touch points of when you, you know, kind of sounds weird to put it this way, but when an employer might be vulnerable to those kind of claims or requests. And that's anytime you're hiring or terminating employees. So if you're considering even a little bit an employee who has requested an accommodation or employee who you know has some sort of condition or family status claim, if that's even a 1% reason for making a decision that affects them negatively, then they've got a claim for discrimination. So you've really got to watch out when you're doing something like that. Same thing with layoff and recall. Um, obviously, if you have a contract, collective agreement, you want to make sure that you're following those things to the T. There could be accommodation requests that reflect that, but just something to turn your mind to. And then the other thing would be work assignments. So if someone, you know, oftentimes employees will make an accommodation claim, um, the employer will offer them another position or a, an altered role in some way, and the employee will react negatively to that. Um, so we have to remember that 
they don't have a right to any perfect accommodation. They have a right to a reasonable accommodation. So generally, if you're keeping them in the workplace, they're making the same amount of money, but maybe they're just doing something slightly differently, then you're probably going to be okay. Okay, so with all that in mind, we'll move on to the medical information. So um, you can see here, I've just kind of put some some general principles. So before we get into that, you have to again ask the starting point for a request from an employer to an employee for medical information. You have to be laser focused on what it is you're asking this medical information, why you're asking for it in the first place, because what you're entitled to, when you can expect it, how you use it, all of those things will depend on the context of why the claim is being made or it even determines whether a claim can be made at all. Um, so the second thing, like I mentioned before, it's, it's not always clear from an employee's perspective what they're asking for. So, um, you know, they may be coming to you with concerns um, that sound like an accommodation and they ask for some time off and then you might ask for some medical information, but it might turn out, you know, in retrospect that really they were looking, um, asking to enforce their right to the um, infectious disease emergency leave which you're not allowed to ask for medical information for in order to substantiate. So you've got to be, again, laser focused. Why am I asking for this medical information? And then you kind of go from there. So really, no matter what the context is, though, these general principles are, are likely to apply. It's going to depend a little bit on the circumstances, but these you can generally rely on these. First and foremost is that you have to balance the legitimate operational needs of the organization with the privacy interests of the employee. So what that means is mainly the scope of your request needs to be appropriate. So if, if an employee is trying to substantiate, um, you know, a three-day absence so they can qualify for sick leave, then a doctor's note that essentially says employee couldn't work these days, that might be enough. If an employee is sent coming to you and saying, um, you know, I've got this issue, I can't do X, Y, Z, then the information that you can expect needs to be a little bit more detailed because you have to be able to know what you can ask the employee to do. So you're really balancing your request for medical information against what it is uh, you want it for and the privacy interests of the employee. And you never want to ask for more medical than you reasonably need. And that all kind of goes to the second point there, which is that context is key. It's going to matter why you're asking for it, what the situation is, all those considerations. The next thing to realize is that your obligations are ongoing. So that goes for employers and it goes for employees. So you can set generally, whether it's you're requesting sick leave or statutory leave, unless it says that you can't ask for medical courts of accommodation, you can set and actually it's, it's a good idea to set check-ins. So just because Particularly if you're, um, you know, if you don't know the nature of the disability, the employee might get better, the employee might get worse, and it's not necessarily a straight line in either direction. So it's not a bad idea to say, or to ask when your initial request for medical information to make clear to them whether the condition is going to change, whether you expect them, what the prognosis is in terms of getting better, getting worse, and then you can check in at regular intervals to see if updated medical is necessary because what an employee can or can't do might change over time. Um, right along with that is that in general, the longer these things go on, so usually this is in the context of say a long-term disability claim or an accommodation claim, the more information an employer is entitled to. 
So like I said, those first few days, quick, you know, one sentence note from a doctor might be sufficient. You get into a longer absence or a longer accommodation, then, you know, you can start expecting information about how long a doctor expects these issues to be in place. Um, further down the line, you can get more information about a prognosis, about, and, you know, if you're, if you're talking about a, a lengthy absence, about whether an employee is likely to return at all. Um, you know, any change in restrictions, anytime a, res a restriction changes, you can get updated medical to do that. So I know employers sometimes feel a little bit helpless in terms of what they can ask for because it is quite limited at the outset, but that right does expand over time. And then the final thing to remember is that no matter how long time goes on, there's some information that you're never going to be entitled to and you really shouldn't be asking for ever. And so things like that, you know, the direct diagnosis or how many treatments and what type of treatments an employee is undergoing. Generally speaking, that's not gonna have any impact on their role or their request for leave. Um, what matters is a doctor's assessment, a medical expert's assessment of how long they're gonna be out, what the restrictions are, that kind of thing. So you wanna make sure that you're never asking for those very, very specific things. And again, it just comes back to the balance of the legitimate operational needs with the privacy interests of the employee. I think that's a really important um, piece of advice, Charles, and that's something that I'm always uh, reviewing with clients. Getting a, a diagnosis is not going to help us. What we really need to know is what are their restrictions and limitations. That's really what we need to know to be able to engage in the accommodation process. Right. And then, so, and then on the, the next slide here, we've kind of, you know, I've kind of gone over this as the theme. It's just kind of reemphasizing that no matter what the request for medical, why you're making that request, you need to know absolutely why you are making that request and that will decide, that will gauge, you know, shape all the decisions that you make, any future requests, you know, what you do with that information and how you address the employee's concern. You really need to figure that out first before you take any other steps. Well, great, thanks for that, Charles. And thank you also to uh, Kelsey and Christina and thank you everyone for watching this brings us to the end of our uh, webinar portion of this presentation and i'm going to bring all of our uh, faces back maybe just to wrap it up we'll go one by one and give uh, you know a, a quick uh, summary final statement from everyone of what do you want our clients in the childcare industry to take away from this presentation so Christina, let's start with you. Thanks, Mike. I think the, the main takeaway um, is that even though things have, to some extent, settled into a new normal, there are still changes happening on a very rapid basis. So I would just be sure before making any decisions, before pulling the trigger on anything with respect to employees, take a second, make sure you have the most up-to-date information, and reach out for advice as you need it. Thanks, Christina. Uh, Kelsey, what do you have for some parting thoughts for our attendees? Well, uh, I'm not sure that I could say it any more concisely or succinctly than Christina did, but it's exactly that. <clears throat> Most of today's presentation talked about the questions you need to ask and the considerations that should be um, you know, at the forefront of any decision-making process in which you, you enter. And, you know, like we said, it's changing all the time. So certainly, you know, careful consideration and a fair process. I think that's the other part. Um, 
not necessarily fair in terms of making sure that everybody gets what they want as an outcome, but fair in terms of it's reasoned, it's measured, and it's applied equally in terms of a process, um, regardless of whether it's an accommodation request on the basis of family status or a job protected leave um, request or, or what have you, right? You've got your processes in place and you're addressing each one the same, whether it's Charles or Christina or Mike or some other person, um, you know, they, they're getting the same thing because as we said, the, the kind of whole team morale aspect is, an, is another aspect that um, can't be underestimated either. Thanks for that, Kelsey. And uh, Charles, why don't you finish us off with some parting thoughts uh, for our guests today? Yeah, sure. I really would just echo um, what Kelsey and Christina have said, but just kind of emphasize that particularly in childcare, because it's become such a, you know, you know, one of the, besides COVID itself, maybe one of the top political and social topics that people are addressing today, the laws are going to change. Even where the law is relatively well established in terms of an accommodation, in any individual accommodation, things can change and they will change over time. So just doing things like attending these webinars, keeping up to date on Toronto Public Health, um, any kind of information coming from the top down, I think is, is really important. And I know everyone's really, really busy and we're happy to help in any way we can, but just trying to stay on top of things changing because it's, you know, nothing stays the same. Thanks for that, Charles. And Thank you also, Kelsey and Christina, and thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, special thanks to everyone who helped share the details of this webinar. We hope you found it useful and, and informative. Uh, again, please keep in mind that if you want to know more about this topic or other related topics, you can go on our website, www.ccpartners.ca. You can watch our past webinars. Uh, we have 20 other uh, presentations that you can stream at your convenience or download as podcasts through our website, links to SoundCloud, iTunes, really wherever you, you listen to podcasts. You can go on our website, navigate to our blog and sign up for our mailing lists, or you can send an email to info at ccpartners.ca and be asked to be put on the blog uh, list. Uh, again, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. We're going to move on to the question and answer portion of our presentation. Mike, I just, sorry, I just wanted to break in for a second too and, and say um, because we do as a firm so much work in the childcare sector, we have a separate uh, contact list for childcare operators and organizations as well. So if you are... Uh, not get on that list, um, please feel free to reach out to info at ccpartners.ca and ask, I mean, it may as well get added to both lists, but certainly, um, you know, the, the childcare specific one as well. Sorry to interrupt. Nope, that's very important. I appreciate that, Kelsey. Thank you very much. And again, to all of our uh, attendees, uh, indulge us for just a couple of minutes and we'll be right back with the question and answer portion of our presentation. Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.